let's say Apple changes their mind about doing Apple Music and Apple this and Apple that, and they just say, we're getting out of digital media completely. What are you going to do? Right. Right. The only thing you own is your newsletter. Facebook tomorrow could say, nope, no more groups, no more pages. We don't like them anymore. Then what are you going to do? If you don't have a newsletter, <laughs> you are really putting your will out there to the digital gods to do whatever they want with you. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, newsletter, it, it may sound old fashioned to some folks, but it's about that span of control. You don't control Facebook, Twitter, Apple Music, Spotify, nobody. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. Welcome to the Storytellers Network podcast. I'm your host, Dan Moyle, and I cannot believe that you get to hear this great conversation today with Paul Sading. I'll get to who Paul is in just a minute, but first, a real quick note. Go to the storytellersnetwork.com for all your information, past episodes with other interviews, resources to help you tell your story better, and contact information for me if you need that. It's all at the Storytellers Network. Com. So today's guest is Paul Sading. Now, Paul is an author and creator of five audio drama podcasts, including Subject Found, Diary of a Madman, Who Killed Julie, uh, one called You, Y-O-U, and Atheist Apocalypse. Uh, he's also the host of Horrible Writing, a podcast where he shares his journey toward being published along with candid interviews with other writers. And his first three books were published uh, back in 2018, Chasing the Demon, which is a thriller, 12 Deaths of Christmas, a horror anthology, which we talk about in, in this conversation, and a novel idea to podcast, which is his nonfiction book that he also talks about at the end of our, of our conversation. So check those out. And, and those books that were all published helped him realize his childhood dream of becoming a published author. Uh, in addition to those ventures, because that couldn't be all right, he's the co-creator of an upcoming horror audio drama titled Family Portraits. And when he's not writing books or podcasts, he's punching out short stories for his patrons over on Patreon and perpetually working on his novels. So without further ado, let's get to Paul Sading's stories. So Paul, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on the Storytellers Network. Uh, we are connecting from almost like one coast to the other of the country here. So this is good stuff, man. Welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invite. I'm excited to chat with you. So we're in our uh, entertainment storytellers season right now, and, and I, I use that you know, loosely, but also like you are an entertainment writer, uh, storyteller, I, I see, uh, with audio dramas in particular, podcasting. Do you, Paul, consider yourself a storyteller at your core? I do. And I feel I always have been. I qualify it. Don't mean I'm a good one, but I do <laughs> feel like I am one. Sure, sure. Uh, so if you've always been one, where did you kind of recognize that, that you're like, okay, not only am I one, but I can do this for my living? Well, that, you know, that's the interesting part for me. And I think a lot of people um, can identify with it from the time, my earliest memories, my, my rise to fame. And it's, I'm being tongue in cheek there, but started as an eight-year-old. I was in second grade. We were in a class. Our teacher made us write a short story. Every student had to. And I didn't know, but they were doing a, a contest, right? So each class had a winner, if you will. I won for my class and we had a little book tour. We would go around to the other second grade 
classes and we would have to read their story. Now, I'm not going to share my age and I wouldn't betray you either, but you and I are about the same age. So, you know, I'm talking way in the way back day. Yeah, man. And I wrote a vampire versus a werewolf story long before the famous stuff that came out. Right. So they stole my idea essentially. Yeah. But, uh, writing that story and reading it to other people as a second grader was nerve wracking, but literally talking to you today, I can still picture myself sitting in that chair with all the other little people in that little half circle. And I, and I knew it. I mean, I was a, athlete I didn't wasn't very strong academically in high school because I didn't focus on it but if you think of the stereotype or stereotypical athlete in high school young teenage male in my spare time at home alone without the friends around I would be writing stories I would create my own newspaper my own magazine and I would write features for those things this is what I did as a teenage boy and you know then I didn't have dreamers in a family we didn't dream. We just worked. And that's kind of what I learned. So when I joined the military, I re- that part of me got washed away for 20 years. It was, uh, it got pushed out very quickly as the military is prone to do, you know, erase everything you were before you're now this new person. And it wasn't until I felt that calling, um, in my mid thirties again, I thought, man, I just miss writing. And it was funny. As soon as I had that epiphany, I dove into it. I mean, head first, mm-hmm. head first. I haven't uh, stopped since. That's awesome. And so have you, you said, so at eight years old, werewolves versus vampires and your diary of a madman is kind of a, an odd story. Let's say, do you tend toward that odd, almost horror, like dredges of the human psyche, or do you love all kinds of story? No, I do. I love all kinds of story. I think, uh, for my own development, it was easier to, for me to, use the darker elements to get to really dive into this uh you mentioned diary of a madman that one is something i did off on the side right when i was frustrated with life or frustrated with humanity i would punch out an episode real quick and just wrote it whenever i felt like getting around to writing it because i had other projects going on but i didn't i mean my audio dramas didn't start that way I, my audio drama started with a satirical comedy okay there are it's not dark in terms of horror, but it's dark in terms of tone because I get very frustrated with how ugly humanity is to each other. Regardless of where you fall on a spectrum, I just hate when people are ugly to each other. So I used the fictional world that I created in Atheist Apocalypse to address social problems. I would like, I would love, hey people, let's all come together around a table. Remember that we're human beings with feelings and let's just converse about our differences instead of you know, throwing barbs. My way to communicate that was through satire, but it did have those, that darker focus and it burned me out. So that's when I moved into the stuff that I enjoyed more. Diary of a Madman, it was kind of that lingering, darker element piece of my creativity. But when I got into writing Subject Found, that's when I moved away from the darker stuff and got toward more suspense, thrash, thrash, slash thriller stuff yeah. uh and that's what i kind of enjoy i've got one upcoming that's a patron exclusive and it's an epic fantasy there you know it's the wheel of time uh song of ice and fire which many of you will know as game of thrones type of fantasy and that's my true love right there i'll always dabble in the horror stuff i've got a book out called the 12 deaths of christmas it's pretty gruesome i grew up in the 80s clive barker was huge in the 80s mm-hmm. and he was 
a beautiful writer. His prose was beautiful, but his horror was just gruesome and grotesque. But then he could write other st fantastical stuff. And you thought, how does that one brain span that spectrum? He's been an inspiration. And one day I would love to be somebody else's Clive Barker. Right now, I'm just trying to do the best that I can. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so Clive's one of your, your heroes. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and so do you, are you able to take kind of that that inspiration from anywhere and turn it into the audio drama could because it's all story. I, yeah, I think so. I, audio drama is a neat medium because it allows you to, to experiment going back to diary of a madman. Again, that was just me. We all have our frustrations with life. Some people deal with it in healthy ways. They work out, they hike, they paint, whatever it may be. My release was, is writing. Mm -hmm. So I was able to focus those energies on that show, but the show itself was me experimenting with sound. How can I make, topically, I wanted you to be uncomfortable. I wanted you to have to think about something uh, because Paul himself, the person, doesn't believe in evil. There's no such thing as evil in my world. There's just people who have, they, everybody's the good guy in their own story. Even Jeffrey Dahmer, in his brain, we don't know how, but in his brain, he was, the, he was the hero of his story. So there's no evil. So I don't worry about ghosts and goblins and all those things. Humanity can be evil. And I thought, I want to make people really uncomfortable. I don't want to scar anybody, right? So I made sure I warned everybody what it was. So the story, I wanted to make you uncomfortable, but the sound the backwards subliminal voices in the soundtrack, the animalistic sounds that would just be dropped out of nowhere. You know, he's mm -hmm. recording his diary and all of a sudden you get this panned effect of this growl or whatever it may be, you know, that, that does the uh, whole traversing across the soundscape from left ear to right ear just to make you uneasy. Mm -hmm. You know, playing around with ice cream truck sounds. That was a lot of fun. And I expected strong reactions to stuff like that. But I feel if we are going to create, if, I, I have an appreciation for everybody who creates because you're giving to the world. That's awesome. If I am going to create, I'm going to push as far as I can push, as far as I'm able to with the limited talents that I have. And that was one way to do it. Because, and I think that's the neat thing about audio drama is it allows you to express yourself as a storyteller in a way that other mediums don't necessarily provide unless of course you've got Hollywood budgets that right. aside, right? I mean, words can jump off a page, but it's easy for a reader to miss, I don't know, some section of prose that was really eloquent or that was an Easter egg. You know, people miss Easter eggs a lot. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. But in audio, you can do it in a different way. And as a creative, any creatives who hear this would, would probably agree. I would imagine having that flexibility to deliver your message in a different way using a sound effect or the alliteration or the talents of a voice actor and the way they deliver it. It's, yeah. it's, it's really a transcendent kind of experience. It's really cool. Is it also, uh, is it also freeing in its limitations, so to speak, because we're such visual creatures and, you know, Netflix and movies and TV and our, our video screens and our phones, everything is so visual but like audio becomes this intimate moment. And so maybe it's a little bit limiting. How freeing is that as well to have to explore how to tell a story through audio? Well, and, that, and that's, I like it. I'm glad you asked that question because every time we create something, we need to be challenging, challenging ourselves to grow. And I think audio really allows you to do that as a writer. If you're 
consciously thinking about that as you're creating something. Uh, but you, you said the key word. There, you know, being visual is great, but with, with visual, we create distance. You put those earbuds in and it cuts out the rest of the world. It is very intimate experience. And, and everybody who's, I don't care if you're doing audio now or you're going to do audio in the future or you're just starting to flirt with the idea of it. One of the things to never, ever, ever forget is I don't care how that person finds you and listens to you. It becomes a you and them thing. I mean, I, it, we could be talking about the biggest show in, audio show in the world. It doesn't matter. To that one listener, that's all it is, is a conversation between that creator and them. And that intimacy, there's so much to play with. And they're depending on, obviously, the genre, your, your goals, your aims for, for the story. But at the same time, there's an intimacy there, which, you know, can be dangerous. It's, some, it's a consideration to have. But for me, that's exciting. One of the best things that somebody can do, I mean, I kind of bend towards horror stuff right now, is horror audio. I can't remember who it was. I want to give credit to the Black Tape uh, podcast, but I'm not sure. I was listening to a horror show, and they had something happening in the story, and everything went silent for like 30 seconds. And it was no sound effects whatsoever, not even maybe below the, uh, my ability to hear it, but there was nothing. And it was the perfect approach. It was a perfect tactic to mm -hmm. let you sit there and dwell on what was just said in that creepy situation the characters were in, and then silence. And it was prolonged. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of stuff happens in the listener's head. And as a writer, that's where you know you've done your job because a thousand people are hearing that 30 seconds of silence in a different way mm -hmm. and they assign their own meaning to it, man. That's beautiful stuff when you can pull that off. Yeah, that's powerful. It, it reminds me of, you know, the, the golden days of radio, right? Before everything was FM and, and pop music. Like it's, it's getting back to that story, that Orson Welles feeling of, Oh, this is powerful. Um, I mean, how exciting is it to be part of that? Oh, it's very, I mean, I've been around it for, for, Four years now, so 2015, yeah. So passing our four-year, my four-year mark, I've already, yeah, I just passed it this spring. It's very exciting to be part of it. It's very exciting to see new people come in and, and fresh ideas. And there's some amazingly talented people that can do stuff with audio. And so it's extending its reach. It's, it's really, it's kind of weird for me because I'm kind of working backwards. I started writing again for audio drama. Now I'm spending most of my time writing novels. And I've been recently studying uh, some audiobooks on, on Audible. And I'm amazed at the uh, evolution of the mar marketplace, if you will, because that's the commercially popular stuff. And it's so thin. It's so skeleton. It's, and then I listen to, you know, audio dramas that people have produced in their home, <laughs> you know, off of their laptop. And it's so rich and it feels like you've been taken to that other place. And it, that is cool to be part of that. It really, really is. It makes me want to go for long drives. Yes. Because <laughs> that's where like, I, I love to listen and just, just drive, you know. There are plenty of times I have not gotten out of my car in a parking lot because I needed to finish said episode before I walked away. <laughs> yes. And I tend to listen to interviews, conversation, dialogue podcasts on like 1.5 or 2x speed. Um, 
especially if I'm learning, you know, I'm listening to a, maybe a marketing podcast as a marketer or business development podcast as, as leadership or whatever, I'll, you know, I'm getting information out of it. And same thing with audible books, right. Uh, or audio books, um, whatever platform it is. But with audio dramas, man, I slow it by down to one. I really listen. I don't want to miss anything. So it's an incredibly different thing. Um, and, and you've got both sides. I mean, you have also your uh, show, your interview show, uh, Writing Horrible, right? Horrible writing. Horrible writing. I got it backwards. Okay. Um, <laughs> horrible writing. I'm left-handed, so everything's backward for me. Uh, <laughs> but, you have, but you have seven podcasts I counted up. Maybe they're not all active at once, but you have seven podcasts and one upcoming. Do you ever not create? Can you just like, is that just who you are? Yeah, no, there's no way I can't not create. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, on horrible writing, one of the things I try to encourage writers to do, because I know it can be very intimidating, especially for new writers, but I tell them that my personal policy is to have a zero, zero word count day, meaning there isn't a single day that ever passes that I don't write at least a word. And I try to help them see balance and use my own personal examples. You know, I've got family stuff going on. We're going to go play putt-putt. Well, that means I need to get down at the computer right now instead of enjoying the coffee out there. And I've, I've shared with them. There have been days where I sat down and in five minutes, I wrote 100 words and I walked away for that day. But at least I created. It is. It is. I literally can feel anxiety, depressive symptoms if I'm not creating. So I, I have to. I've got more stories than I could ever possibly tell in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Even if I was back in my 20s, which... I wish I was smart enough back then to invest this heavily. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I can't, I have to create. It's just, it's this pull. It's this addiction. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. And with having all of these different options out there, I get to explore myself all the way from, you know, satirical comedy in Atheist Apocalypse, Diary of a Madman. Subject found is my, you know, my girlfriend. It's my mistress. I love playing around with legends and lore, but all the way to something like Who Killed Julie? You know, that's just a straight up docu- fictionalized dro- docudrama uh, crime, right? Mm-hmm. I love being able to do that because it develops me as a writer. Every day I should be challenging myself to do something new. Uh, the one thing I don't think I'll ever do is sci-fi just because I'm not a big sci-fi guy, but who knows? Never say never. Right, absolutely. Well, and it almost, I mean, gosh, some of it almost feels sci-fi in a way but it's not yeah but it's funny how we try to segment our story ideas you know um now you mentioned something there paul and also earlier you you just you just write however this the the person consumes it 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 becomes its its own platform its own medium but you just write so i want to explore a little bit the, the difference between podcasting writing for podcasting and then writing for traditional books um so you mentioned your novels do you separate those when it's time to create or do you just write and then decide where it's going to go? How does that work for you? No, it's, it's very deliberate. So I started obviously with the audio drama, uh, subject found season one was a Bigfoot story because I didn't know if I was ever going to write a second season. And that eight year old I told you about, he was always in love with Bigfoot. You know, that Patterson Gimlin film of Bigfoot walking across a lake bed when I was a little kid, that was cool for me. I always wanted to see a Bigfoot kind of thing. And I, had an idea a few years ago watching American Horror Story. I thought it was really neat how each season was a standalone, mm-hmm. yet they would bring back the same actors or roughly the same actors and tell a brand new story. And I thought, God, I want to do that in podcast form. How can I do it? Hmm. Oh, myth, legends, and lore. 
there's a billion of them out there. So I could pick one every season and write a story to it. And that's where Subject Found was born. Um, starting with that one, once I was done with that first season, I immediately started writing the second season called Rip. It's all, both of those are already out there if you want to check them out. But as I was writing that second season, I thought, you know, it'd be really neat to adapt this to a novel, the first season, the Bigfoot season. Uh, so I reverse engineered that. All I had was a script with director notes for sound effects, and that was it. So I had to go in, fill in the blanks. Rip, because it was already written, was the same thing. As a matter of fact, this morning before our chat, I was formatting the paperback to get, that, to get the uh, ebook and the paperback ready to get published. Hmm. But there is a third season of Subject Found. It may or may not ever happen in audio form, but it will happen as a book. The script is written in rough draft, but uh, before that ever probably happens because of the cost of it, I'll probably write, the, write and publish the novel first. Now, going forward, I see things happening differently. I'm going to adapt Who Killed Julie to a novel, but there's four stories after that, and those will all probably be written as a novel first, and then I'll go back and, and uh, do audio dramas for it. There are differences to it. There are your words. The only thing you have in audio, besides the sound effects, are the words. The words have to convey so much. Whereas in a novel, I can have uh, a character say, Dan, that's not cool, Bob said. And then I can fill it in with exposition to paint that picture for you. I don't get that in audio. And one of the things I don't enjoy about current contemporary audio drama, and I think it's because there's a lot of new young writers, um, they do a lot of telling in the dialogue, otherwise known as, as you know, Bob's, right? So as you know, Dan, you and I are looking at each other on a webcam. And I thought that's one of the things that you can't do in audio drama. So you have to think of, in, in a book, I could use the expo exposition to, to fill out that picture for you. But in an audio drama, I've got one sentence to convey that thing or two, right? So that dialogue has to be spot on sentence after sentence. It's tough. It's a lot of fun. It helps you as a writer. Um, but if you're thinking about these things, one of the things you need to think about is that kind of stuff, that, that even the dialogue for an audio drama is going to be different than the dialogue that you use in the novel adaptation or the novel version of that same exact story. So... They're, they're the same story, but at the end of the day, you have different products. And how interesting, too, that you can take the same story in, in multi-use, multi-platform, you know, uh, reuse it. You know, in, in marketing, we just, you know, call it reusing content kind of thing, right? You can, you can take a subject matter in marketing and make it an infographic and a video and some social media and a blog post and an ebook and a blah, 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 blah. And you can take a bunch of blog posts and make them into an ebook and you're doing the same thing with story, like in the entertainment side of it, mm -hmm. you know, here's the story about Bigfoot. Well, I can use it in an audio drama. I can use it in a novel. Uh, you can use it in tweets or in Instagram stories or whatever. So, so I, what I hear you saying, whether you're thinking it or not <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is for storytellers to think multi-platform. Don't like, don't just think one thing. Uh, definitely not in this day and age yeah. we, we've got too much power at our fingertips there's voracious audiences and we have to check our biases now i love podcasts well that's great but your aunt sue doesn't and she never will she's it's just not something she's interested in she likes being on the couch on a rainy day with a blanket over her lap reading a book why not give aunt sue that beautiful story in another form yes it means more work but at the same time 
you're reaching that larger swath. And this isn't even necessarily the commercial slash financial aspect of it. It's, a, I, I think most of us, I hope, most of us storytellers do it for the love of telling stories. You know, that, that commercial financial aspect of it, should something be realized, great, wonderful, because that allows you to do more. But we want to share our stories. Why wouldn't we want to share our stories with as many people as possible? Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about the financial side of it, I want to get into um, the, the, that side of it. I know you use Patreon. You mentioned earlier you've got uh, exclusive content for patrons. Um, how do those tools affect the world of storytellers today? I think it's kind of, I, I think it gives us, a foundation upon which to really, really extend our brand, extend our products into experiment too. Uh, because you can do things, wh- when you do that for yourself, there's business considerations and then there's creative considerations. When you're using tools like that, you can do, um, for me, for example, I've got two exclusive audio dramas that I give to my patrons. One is Crown of Thieves. One episode's been published. It's that epic fantasy that I was telling you about. And I produce that and work on that daily as much as I can every day and get out episodes as quickly as I can for them. And it's drawn those folks in. There's another one I call you. And it's a, I have to be careful how I say this because there's a copyright infringement if I say it the wrong way. Hmm. The audience led decision plot. So basically at the end of each episode, I have no idea where the story is going to go. I let my patrons decide where it's going to go next. And then I figure out how I'm going to get there with it. Gotcha. Uh, so it, again, as a creative, I get to go play in stuff I like that may not be pulsating stuff because it's not horror or thriller or whatever. But at the same time, I can also do something like you where I let other people decide plot elements and I have to react to it. That makes me grow as a, as a writer. Now, you're doing this exclusive stuff for people. This only can happen if you have a platform upon which to do it like Patreon. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the very real aspect of being a creative uh, is it takes money to do this. It takes money to be found. It takes money to pull these things off. Mm-hmm. Stuff like Patreon is absolutely essential to allowing you be, to be able to do that long-term and then have those other considerations. Um, whether it's you know paying for advertisement for a book that you've got or books that you have out there, that those things cost money or, or doing conventions and whatnot and you're giving stuff away to raise awareness of your product that stuff takes money and you've you know you know studios aren't knocking down doors for most of us so we have to be creative in how we do it it's a relationship though too right there's this theory and dan i'm sure you're probably aware of it right you just find your thousand true fans if you can find your thousand true fans especially as a writer you you build upon that you launch successfully each book etc etc i have been on patreon since about the second month of its operations. I'm one of the first people on it and all kinds of different shows from audio drama to talk shows to literal talk shows and boring news shows that I tried early on. (laughs) Horrible stuff. But the theme of Patreon remains the same. It doesn't matter if you've got one patron or a thousand patrons. Uh, Those folks are there for you. They're not there necessarily for your content. Yes, they enjoy that, but they want to support you. They believe in you. That's relationship building. That's relationship marketing right there. And it's, it's yeah. a, so it, stuff like that serves so many purposes, the creative, the financial, and that relational aspect of all of this. 
it's, it's something I know a lot of creatives struggle with that imposter syndrome. I don't feel it's right for me to do this. And I don't know the right words because I'm big on taking your space. I tell my uh, horrible writing listeners that all the time. I don't care what anybody tells you. You have space. You deserve to be in that space. Go take it. Nobody's going to give it to you. You got to go take it. Mm -hmm. uh, so and if there's any creative or future storyteller listening to this and you don't feel right, you don't feel legit, uh, we can chat on the side uh, because I'm telling you right now, you have space. Go take that space. You will find those people over time. It takes time to do this, but there's so many benefits to stuff like this. So many empowering benefits. It's, and you know, it's something I've struggled with. I went, I've been writing professionally for around 20 years now. And I started with TV news producing and I was like, Oh, I'm being paid to write. I'm a paid writer. But even since then, I mean, I've struggled with that. You know, do I deserve this space? And when I launched the storytellers network, who cares to hear from me, but they're not hearing from me. They're hearing from, the conversations. And so, yeah, you, you're right. Paul. I, I can't, can't agree more. You, you deserve that space. If you're a storyteller, take it. Nobody's going to give it to you. It's not called, I mean, it's called a best selling book for a reason. Cause you have to sell, you have to ask. You do. Yeah. As, as icky as that can feel for us creatives, you, <laughs> it's a, it's a reality. Just accept it. Yep. And just accept it. And, and that, that's the starting point. Once you go, it's something that has to happen. Okay. Now, what do I do? And then you take that first step. But without just accepting that, that you have to be in part a salesperson, if you can just get past any, any lingering um, associations with what that word means to you, and, and everybody deserves their space. Everybody, and it's not easy. And I hope I, it doesn't sound like I'm being flippant about it. Um, because again, I've been doing this for a while and I've been very doggedly, trying to find that space. But I truly believe that. I truly believe that everybody's got a voice. Everybody's got space. But most people don't believe it. And right. it's, you know, it, that's the key. Well, and I love, I found your Medium article too about newsletters, mm -hmm. uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. But you, along kind of the same lines, you basically say in that, that like too many people are looking just for free stuff from authors. And you, Paul, you're interested in creating an engaging email list like we all should be, right? And so there again, it's don't be afraid to ask. You have that list for a reason. They want to hear from you and you want to reach out to them. How, how do you make sure that you're creating that email list? I mean, if, if email is like the golden chalice, so to speak, of marketing right now, how do you begin to do that? You, here's, <laughs> I don't want to scare anybody away. Um, <laughs> But you have, okay, let's all just be, let's realize this is Netflix. This is Netflix's world and we're all just running space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody's got a subscription service. Uh, Spotify, Netflix, I don't care who, Amazon Prime, whatever it is. That's the reality. So as a creative, we've got to recognize that people are conditioned to getting stuff for free. I don't think about the fact that I give Netflix $15 a month or whatever it is. All I know is when I want to sit down and watch a movie or binge a TV show, I pull up Netflix and magically it's there. Oh, I want another one. Magically it's there. I'm not paying somebody for each of those transactions. That's the marketplace. So how do you as a creative start carving out space? You give stuff away. You give stuff away and then you give stuff away some more. Um, 
for audio dramatists or people interested in audio drama, this is an interesting one because I've seen people be resistant to that. And I, it, I have a hard time understanding it because each episode of an audio drama takes roughly about 100 labor hours to complete one episode. I do a talk show, again, horrible writing, and it takes me 10 minutes to come up with questions, uh, 40 minutes to do an interview, uh, another 40 minutes to produce it, and I'm done. So the, the imbalance there is, is amazing. We give those audio dramas away for free. So we're already doing it. Mm. Can we adjust our business model to where we can give evergreen stuff away and maybe tailor, throttle back a little bit on the audio drama thing so that we can do this one thing that's going to last across platforms and it's evergreen. It's going to be out there forever. People will always start finding me through that, you know, and it could be something fun. A um, novella that, or, or, you know, I, I say novella because I'm thinking writers right now, but anyways, a short story, whatever it may be, character uh, cards, you know, for that audio drama that you do have. Well, I can't say that word. I was going to say a Harry Potter name, uh, but just go back to Bob, right? Here's Bob, you know, here's a, uh, the demographics, he's 45, he works at a sweatshop, I don't know, right? Stuff like that, we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is come over here, sign up. I do this stuff all the time. And you start building that relationship. If you're watching your, your statistics, you're going to see what people are opening and what they're not opening. So, hey, that Bob post, people opened, but my trip to Madrid, nobody even opened it or <laughs> vice versa because yeah. I found it's actually the personal stuff that people like more than the uh, other stuff hmm. so you know and just and start slowly building that. it's a long slow burn but tomorrow like Amazon did this year to all of us authors they decided they're going to do their algorithms differently and across the board authors suffered immensely mm -hmm. uh, because of that it could still happen tomorrow at let's say Apple changes their mind about doing Apple music and Apple this and Apple that. And they just say, we're getting out of digital media completely. What are you going to do? Right. Right. The only thing you own is your newsletter. Facebook tomorrow could say, Nope, no more groups, no more pages. We don't like them anymore. Then what are you going to do? If you don't have a newsletter, <laughs> you are really putting your will out there to the digital gods to do whatever they want with you. Uh, so yeah, newsletter, it may sound old fashioned to some folks, but it's about that span of control. You don't control Facebook, Twitter, Apple Music, Spotify, nobody. Yeah. Well, so you're, you gotta have that. And your, your home. So all that other stuff is rented space, right? right. Apple podcasts and Facebook, whatever that's, that's a, an apartment. Your home I've always said is your website. And, and what I'm now thinking based on this conversation, that newsletter is the welcome mat or the open door or the whatever that brings people in and stays in touch with them. That's your, your telephone line. Maybe, I don't know. No. Go back to landline. Really, really <laughs> date our, ourselves there, Paul. There are some people who are going to ask you what a landline is. <laughs> right, right. Bring it on. <laughs> Email me and ask. So Paul, on, on horrible writing, uh, you've interviewed, from what I can tell, around 100 people, uh, storytellers, writers, this kind of stuff. What have you learned from all those conversations with other creators? That we all are imposters, we feel. Mm. Let me qualify that. Even the most successful people feel like they don't deserve it. Uh, and it's, it just blows my mind to hear that. And then what I've learned is uh, 
beyond that, so that I, that's a commonality. And for me, that's encouraging. I hope that others don't find that discouraging. I find that encouraging to know that somebody like Joanna Penn, who was one of us 10 short years ago, less than that, you know, a worker bee doing a job they didn't like, et cetera, et cetera, now is able to support herself and her husband just through her creative ventures, right? Somebody like her even says, some days I feel like a fraudster. That's encouraging to me because it helps me squash that, that inner critic, that little demonic voice in my head that says, you're no good. You know, why are you wasting your time? Because then I would draw up conversations from her and I hear her say that and you, you know, then I punch the demonic voice in the face and I keep creating. <laughs> yes. So, and, and there's so many giving people. So I know that drama is sexy and social media is a cesspool of drama, but through those interviews, talking to these people who don't have to give me their time, who do, and then they, Simon Wood is a USA Today bestselling author, uh, like a suspense thriller author. I met him at a writer's conference out here in Washington. And because I believe in taking your space, after his lesson, I walked straight up to him and I said, hey, Simon, my name's Paul. Do you do uh, podcast interviews by chance? Yes. And his beautiful British accent, he said, why? Well, yeah, I have that a horrible accent. <laughs> why I don't act. But he said, yes, I do. Uh, what's going on? And I had a short conversation, right? Fast forward two or three months. He's back home. The uh, interview time comes up. We do the interview. And then I noticed that we're just shooting the breeze for another hour and a half. A USA Today bestselling author with like 30 books out there with this, you know, little no-name podcast slash author slash audio dramatist. And he's given me, now, he, now because this is, uh, could be heard in the sphere forever, he wasn't bad-mouthing anybody, but he was giving me deeper insight into the industry that I'm trying to get deeper into. Mm -hmm. He was coaching me. He was mentoring me. He didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't have to give me 90 more minutes of his time, but he did. Folks are good. Most people are very good, very kind, very giving, and they all struggle just like you are. Remember that. Embrace that. That is the power of cre creatives. You know, don't focus on the, the, the little distracting thing over here that's dramatic because that's really, really in the minority. Most people are good. They're very busy, but they're great people. They're giving people. And every single one of us doesn't believe uh, that we have earned the right to be here, whatever that may be. Oh. And isn't it incredible that someone will take the time like that because you have a platform, they're willing to just give. Yes. Like I, that's what I found too, is that, you know, I'm, I'm in, in talks for with a couple of pretty major storytellers, uh, one TV show creator, one is a documentarian and I'm just super excited that it's even a possibility. If it never happens, like at least they took my phone call. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, at the end of the day, they're just people too. And they probably have the same thing. I don't deserve to be here. So I'm going to reach out to somebody and, and do that interview. So exactly. yeah, that's awesome. Um, do you, on horrible writing, uh, do you prefer well-known best-selling type writers or do you prefer kind of the unknown storytellers that, that you're able to really kind of pull something out of? Oh God. That's like asking me if I, who, which one of my children do I love more? Well, but we all have a favorite. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have two kids. They're not, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, you're right. No, I mean, no, seriously, we're kidding. We're kidding, folks. Uh, to be honest, there are positives from both of them. I enjoy having both types on there. I do. Because um, the newer storytelling teller may be more relatable to my audience. 
but at the same time, that more established person is a guidepost for the audience to get there because the show is really kind of vectored at newer writers slash aspiring authors, audio dramatists than it is somebody who's already got 10 books and they, mm-hmm. they know the lay of the land. And with horrible writing, it's not about craft. I'll try to weave craft into the conversation. Uh, but the reason I call it horrible writing, just so your listeners go, what? that's a really weird name. <laughs> it's kind of indicative of my personality, my brand. I feel, again, take your space. I feel if I am self-deprecating, my writing is horrible, then anybody in the world who says, Paul, your writing is horrible, I've got the armor already. I've walked into battle and I'm in a full suit of armor. Your barbs are not going to hurt me. So I laugh about it. Yep. You should see some of the crap I write, right? <laughs> you just, and you keep pressing on. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the premise of that show is for them to come on and share the real them. I mean, I had Chris Fox on. Chris Fox is any indie author uh, who's very interested in the business side of indie authorship knows who Chris Fox is. And he came on and he talked about mindset, but he talked about his depression, what he went through. I mean, to have somebody at his level share that kind of stuff. And then each interview, we do a segment that's called horrible writing. And I get, what is your horrible writing experience? And I get these authors who will come on and share something, air quotes, that was horrible. Now in the moment, it might've been traumatizing and they've recovered over the years. It might've been funny. It might've been incredibly humiliating or embarrassing. But the whole premise is that thing happened. How did you react? Because you're over here, right? And it's trying to help those people who feel disenfranchised, uh, ostracized, hopeless to realize, wow, that person went through that horrible thing and yet they, they got through it. And, you know, it's all about that empowerment, empowerment through candor. Just be real with each other and, and be powerful. Um, so, and everybody can give me that, that from that newbie, that newer writer, all the way up to those uh, well-established folks. Empowerment through candor. I love it, Paul. Man, this is great. We could sit here for hours, um, but I won't do that to you. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to yeah, give- I've got seven podcasts and two books to work on. I know, that's right, right. But uh, I do want to give you a chance to, to let everybody know where to find those seven podcasts and everything. I will link the things in the show notes. And I have one last question to get to, but first, uh, where can people find you? What's the best place to connect with Paul? The best thing to do is to go to paulsading.com and you can see links for everything. The audiobooks, the nonfiction book, and the, uh, by the way, the nonfiction book, for those of you who are enjoying Dan's show, is about showing you as a writer how you can use podcasting to sell more of your books. So that might be something you want to check out. Paul Sating, P-A-U-L-S-A-T-I-N-G. Awesome. We'll link to that and everything else in the show notes. Um, so, Paul, if someone were to say to you tomorrow that you can no longer be a storyteller and you had to find mm-hmm. something else to do, uh, <laughs> what would your last story be that you'd want to go out on? I have always been an epic story person. I, the bigger, the better for me. The, you know, the grandiose, larger than life type stuff. So obviously epic fantasy is the first thing that might fall to somebody's mind. You know, those huge Lord of the Ring type stories that are just or Game of Thrones type stuff that's big and beyond. But the first one that ever saw me, the, showed me the power of story on that epic scale was It from Stephen King. Uh, you know, a thousand page horror book. Are you serious? Nobody has the audacity to do that. Well, yeah, they do. And he did, by the way. Yeah. So I, that would be the thing for me is, you know, to take one of these social issues that I have a, a very strong frustrations with, because again, that's how I deal with my frustrations with the world is through creation. 
there's a particular couple um, societal issues that are are permanent, and I just wish that as humanity we would agree to get over them together, but we don't seem to be at the point to do that. And I would love to ha have created something li like his on the level of it, where it is that massive tome that you pick it up at the bookstore and you need your friend to help you carry it to the cash register. <laughs> that, you know, uh, it is a m message of hope, but it's also, you know, one of those dark, twisted, fun tales that just exhaust people over a thousand pages. That would be fun to awesome. do. Heck yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, Paul. Well, hey, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on with me today. And, uh, and cheers to you. And we'll talk soon, man. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Once again, thank you so much, Paul, for joining me on the Storytellers Network. Uh, you need to check out Paul's stuff. Connect with him at the links in the show notes. Listen to his podcast. Read his books. Paul is awesome. And follow him on, on uh, Twitter as well. Follow him on social media because he's got a bunch of great stuff there. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing it with someone that you think might enjoy it. Post it to social media. Just tell them about it. I appreciate that very much. And if you really, really enjoyed it, leave me a rating or review over on your podcast player of choice. Thank you for listening. Go to storytellersnetwork.com for everything you need to know about the Storytellers Network. Send me an email. Let me know what you love about the show. And until next time, here's to telling our stories and having stories to tell. Cheers. Cheers.